0: Hello and welcome to Hightailing Through History, a history podcast where two sisters get high and surprise each other with a story from history's vault of the weird and the wonderful. I am uh, the firstborn sister, Laurel.
1: <laughs> like how
0: you say it, like it's like some like weird prophecy.
1: <laughs> I guess that makes me the lastborn
0: sister, Katie. <laughs> yeah, the our kid sister here. Yeah, I I can't really get too creative beyond like eldest... First born. I mean after yeah. that I think you can't like the the air to the king I don't know that then that feels a little <laughs> bit feels a little bit too much but hey we are also joined in the smoke circle today by Brian Austin he is the host of let's be Frank an auditory Almanac for the Curious Mind and is also a first person historical interpreter for a couple of America's founding fathers. Brian,
2: welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, just for historical context, primogenitor is a thing. So being firstborn and then being the spare—that's completely appropriate language. Oh, the
1: heir and a spare. So look the at that. I'm your heir. Know,
2: if you need a new title for your next podcast on really <laughs> antiquated forms of her, uh, hereditary <laughs> titles, I'm your guy. <laughs> Hi, everybody.
0: So, <That's> <laughs> I mean, Brian, before we even really get started into our what I know is going to be our amazing time today. I want to first thank you for for checking the box, helping me realize my dream of going back in my phone box time machine and plucking a historical figure out of time uh, and uh and, and bringing it back. I get to feel like a uh, Ted Theodore Bill and Logan. Ted, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say could you imagine
2: if so that thank was real? You you know that's that's really my whole um that's what the entirety of my art is based off of is giving people the bill and ted experience just yes. a most excellent adventure uh you know at any point in time uh <laughs> i just happen to do it in really really funny clothes steeped in, in american aspirations uh my pleasure i'm so i'm so happy to do it i'm so happy to to hop on and talk history and and talk about the ways that we we share history because I think we're in such a fascinating time uh, where that's that's changing, and we're questioning how best to tell our our stories. Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm super excited to be here in funny clothes and and talk about that.
0: And I'm very happy that you you wore the outfit for us. I really appreciate I that. I was like, to. could
1: you could you be Benjamin I know Franklin when you said for us? that? He's <laughs> like, am I showing up in full dress? I was like, oh wait, there's costumes. I was like, ah.
2: Uh, I can, I can, and and certainly would be would be happy to. Uh, should I just? I mean, I mean, how do how do we want to do this? Do you want to put a five on the table and I'll leave the room and come back in? How do we? I mean, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh,
0: this is good. I think it's interesting. The
2: thing, so the, just to, just mm-hmm. to kind of, I feel like we should give a, a start of context. So I think mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't escape me that for the most part, people's only. Um, kind of the, the bridge or connection between teaching history and dressing up is the episode of The Office. You know, Do you know the, the episode where uh, Michael Scott hires a, a male entertainer, but what he accidentally ends up hiring is a Ben Franklin impersonator? Oh
3: so my God. It's a,
2: have you seen this episode? <laughs> this is in season two. It's I a have bac- not
1: watched The Office. Laurel probably okay. has. So
2: it's a bachelorette party. It's a bachelorette party. And Michael Scott's like, I got someone sexy here. And it's Ben Franklin. And more than that, it's a guy showing up as Ben Franklin. And um, I don't want to start being Ben Franklin until I address the elephant in the room because (laughs) what he does is sort of how you introduce of like, good day, my name is Benjamin Franklin and here's what I did for America and I'm here to talk about the founding of the country. And there is a lot of... um, There's a lot of what we call first person interpretation, which we'll talk Mm -hmm. about, which can feel that way um, because you have to, if you're going to immerse people in the past, you know, you have to kind of give them setting, place, person, time. And sometimes the way you do that can be a little clumsy. Uh, So I always, I kind of get a chuckle. And when I first embarked on picking up the doctor and, and saying, well, how do I... What do I do different than all the other people who are doing this? Um, how do I how do I make a connection when when there's already so many people doing it in great ways, but also really kitschy ways? Um, mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I, you have to address the elephant in the room and say, you know, yes, that's that's one way to do it. It's not the way I'm trying to do it. But if I don't do it right, <laughs> it could at all times. I'm one step away from that satire. <laughs> It's the tightrope I <laughs> walk at all times.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure, and I guess you know. I always like to know how people, like how all of our history friends, they got to where they are. And I, I know you have kind of an interesting journey as to how you got to being a first person historical interpreter. Yeah. So, can you tell yeah, us this about is a that?
2: this is a weird um, this is a weird job to quantify. On a resume, it really is. Um, and how I got here is a pretty, pretty weird road. So I decided when I was twelve years old that I wanted to tell stories. Um, I was a, I'm a really, I'm a really awkward man. I'm, I'm a super awkward man. I say with my silk cravat and spectacles, like it's ridiculous. I'm absurd. But I was a really weird kid. <laughs> And like I was, a I was the kid who pined for the days of silk cravats and spectacles. So all I'd be right. so stoked mm. to be doing mm-hmm. what I'm doing. But I was also an only child. Um, so so I had this world in my head that I wanted to live in, and I I sat and melancholy at the world I did live in and all that. So, um, sixth grade. Uh, we did this like play in class and uh, it was Sherlock Holmes in the case of the speckled band. And I got picked to be oh. um, Sir Gramsby Roy lot. And um, here I was this really shy kid who d- didn't really have any friends. And for some reason, like went for it in that moment, like that, that single moment. And suddenly um you know, me feeling like I was, I, who had never been noticed, never been special, never been unique. I suddenly felt that kind of like electric pulse of like, Ooh, this is a, this is a weird fixed moment in my life where things will never be the same, you know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, and I went home to my parents who are both accountants and said, mom and dad, I want to be an actor. And they were like, all right. Uh, (laughs) that's so cool. (laughs) And yeah, like that's the reaction, you know, sure, like,
1: yeah, okay. All right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and that's where, you know, um, that's where it kind of started. And and, you know, that telling stories, it, it molded through a variety of of different facets. You know, a year later I wanted to be a stand-up comic. The next year I wanted to be a puppeteer. The next year I wanted to do film. And mm-hmm. I've kind of done all of it over the course of the winding road to get myself to where I am. But the one thing I never deviated from was a great love of stories. Mm-hmm. Um and so when I left college, I I I ha- I was successful as a professional actor. I worked at regional theaters all over the country, like I had I had work, which was great.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I was dissatisfied at the same time. Um yeah. and I was looking for what what I wanted to do because I felt like I wanted to do more. I wanted I wanted to connect in deeper ways. I wanted to leave an impact in ways that I didn't feel like I was succeeding. And so in 2000 and uh, 2012, I had an offer to go to Texas to do a summer Shakespeare festival. Um, I I was really big for a time into not only Shakespeare, but also like fight choreography and sword fighting. So I did like different fight direction for companies too. Um, And instead I I went to clown school in Humboldt County, California. Um, Speaking of hightailing through history, Humboldt County is has a small, um, association with certain vices, but <laughs> it also has a clown school in it. Um, in an amazing clown That's school, amazing. um, called, uh, Del Arte international, which Commedia Dell'Arte is a, um, form of theater that we get a lot of our uh, clownish archetypes, um, you know, And so it's an Italian form of theater. And this school is built not only in that, but also in devised theater. And devised theater is this really beautiful form of organic theater where you show up with a group of people and you don't necessarily have a script. You don't necessarily have mm-hmm. a story. What you have is an idea. And you come to the table and you simply say, yes. And art happens. And it was magic to me. It was so cool. And I was like, there's something to this. And while while I was in this place, I had had my face painted by two traveling hippies the night before. I had a job interview with Colonial Williamsburg. Now, the funny thing about this, um, uh, the, I had a Skype interview with a person who is now a vice president at Colonial Williamsburg. And the hippie makeup wouldn't come off my face. I could <laughs> not scrub off this <clears throat> makeup that they had painted on my face. So my oh, Skype no. interview, like I had like... Just just like they again these these itinerant hippies were like, We're gonna paint your soul on your face, so i my face was covered in soul, and um <laughs> there it was, this job interview <laughs> and, um just a uh-huh. smattering of soul, and um <laughs> uh that was that was that was you know the first job offer I got with colonial Williamsburg. and it was oh, yeah. as... And it was as somebody who, um, it wasn't as a character. It was somebody who checked, you know, made sure people had tickets, made sure people know where they were. It was in costume, so like cool rock and roll. But it wasn't, it wasn't yet what we call first person interpretation. That hadn't, I hadn't hadn't arrived there yet. So I, I got to Williamsburg. I didn't know anything about history, not more than the average person. And um, about a month in, I got an audition to be one of their their actors. So moving from third person interpretation, how we talk history in the the past tense um, into first person. Now what mm-hmm. that means is you are you are putting on the name of somebody from the past. These experiences that happen happen to you. Um, you know, Washington crossed the Delaware versus I crossed the Delaware with Washington. Um, and so I, I got I, I, I was like I auditioned and it was mostly so I could you know get a bump and pay. Um, but I was also like, maybe they'll make me somebody cool and like I can wear a sword <laughs> or like ride a horse and it'll be great. And then they picked James Madison for me, who is the opposite of that. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know, <laughs> if you if you ever want to see a boiled spaghetti made a person, it's James Madison. Oh, uh, he's I mean. great. He's so great. Uh, and uh, oh no, I, I didn't feel like I was that. I, I you know I never considered <clears throat> myself very intelligent. I never considered myself very smart. It um, was really intimidating. Dating, to suddenly look at somebody who was only intelligence and didn't didn't have a ton of social skill, and um, I remember the first day I ever stepped out in in the funny clothes and had that like, okay, I'm a performer. This is the character I'm playing. It was like there was a a sign like or a target painted on my back that you know, God, any moment someone's going to call me out and be like, you're a fake, you're a phony, yeah. even though I am. Like it was such a, it was such a strange feeling. And that was, it was 11 years ago of, of learning history by walking it. Um, You know, I was 25 when I started, which was the same age Madison was when he entered into public life. And I'm 36 now, which is the age Madison was when he's working on the constitution. Um, And so it's been a really fascinating way to experience someone's life um, and to leave an impact because, you know, doing it for 11 years, suddenly, a a kid you met who was, you know, eight when you met them is now voting. Um, so that's been a pretty cool thing. And um, you know, f- Franklin came about in a kind of a weird way only because, you know, I get I keep getting fatter and balder and people keep asking, Are you Ben Franklin? So finally I was like, Yes.
3: No. Okay. <laughs> yes.
2: I'm gonna be Ben Franklin. I'm gonna lean that's in to cool, <laughs> lean into that inner Franklin baby. Um And there's other reasons why the podcast, you know, came about, but, you know, I think it's the, the, the work that I've done has been predominantly in front of live audiences. And this has been this experiment because we're in this, you know, COVID shook everything up, changed everything up. We live in a world now of short form content. We live in the world where we connect with people who we have never seen in the flesh, Mm -hmm. who we feel deep connections and friendships with, despite it. Um, Mm -hmm. These digital salons in which we suddenly find ourselves are real avenues where, conceivably, um, we're framing the institutions and museums of tomorrow by the content we create today. And that really fascinated me. Um, that that really kind of um, that allured me to this this idea, or rather, this question of like, is this something people could like? Is this something that people could could get behind and it's kind of evolved you know over time you know season one was this spring and i never i didn't get in front of a camera it was all just my voice and um season two i I started stepping out more and more into the content that i was creating and uh you know i don't know how the bar is going to get raised for season three but it's been it's been really it's been really fun seeing how the work changes so so, for instance, um, really, for the past eleven years, when I step out and I'm a character, I assume everybody around me is going to be in the same year that I'm in, so, for instance, if I'm going to be James Madison for a school, all of these kids are going to be in seventeen eighty seven with me, and that's fine, um, but what's great about this work suddenly, when it comes to Franklin, it kind of turns it on its head, said, no. Everybody else is in 2023 and I'm having to be here with you which means suddenly I'm learning alongside you what it is and it's all so dumb because we know it's play but it's also effective because it's play we're suspending disbelief mm-hmm. we're teaching history in one of the most um one of the most ancient and um effective ways which is storytelling mm-hmm. you know before we had academic history we had Herodotus and Thucydides and, you know, um, all of that. That was... Long that was answer. gorgeous. No, that was, that was my favorite
0: answer. That was my favorite answer I've heard. And like your path and your journey that you've had, I think it's amazing. I really am looking forward to talking with you more about your time as a first person historical interpreter. And we're going to be having a longer chat about that. So if you want to hear that, which I know you do, because it's going to be a fascinating and amazing discussion based on... <laughs> Based on your last answer you just had, uh, go over to our Patreon and we're going to have that interview up over there. I know we've got a Patreon. Like I'm doing it slowly, but surely we're doing it. We're getting there. Eh, eh. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So uh, Dr. Franklin, we usually at at our shows, we are imbibing in some way. I know it's a little bit earlier in your day, but are you, are you drinking (laughs) anything with us today from like water to a coffee or anything like that?
2: Uh, Miss Rockle, it's never too early in the day, but I do <laughs> practice all things in moderation. Uh, eating not to dullness, drinking not to intoxication. Today uh, is simply tea, but not East India tea, mind you.
0: Mm. See that. And huzzah, you noticed, indeed. <laughs> uh, upon my
2: mug is a particular phrase. Uh, the camera <laughs> somehow inverted the image, which I'm entirely fascinated by how this works, but it says huzzah, which is a... <laughs> An honorary and sign-off of, of my time. Uh, uh, an abbreviation of uh, his honor, meaning the king's. Oh, nice. Which is why the French's is, is hooray. Ray being king in French. Oh, right.
0: oh, And look at this. Already learning so much.
2: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: <laughs> Appreciate it. How about you, Katie?
1: I have my little can today. Itty bitty. bitty. With a little bit of C B D to keep me relaxed so that when we're done here I can handle my tarantula with ease. <laughs> and a little bit of liquid courage, perhaps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All of the day's work for Arcady. That's-, <laughs> That's how we roll. Uh I am um I'm partaking in some green tea with jasmine. Mm. Quite oh, a fan jasmine tea. Jasmine tea. <gasps> Uncle Ira would be so proud. And my my cup. <laughs> As a oh god Clark Gable as Rhett Butler in the fiftieth anniversary of Gone with the Wind. I guess I found this at a uh, an, a resale shop recently, and of course, if you I did. told you, I nearly had tears in my eyes by the time I found it, and it was just sitting by itself on a little shelf. And I was like, Mr. Gable, coming home with me.
2: You really need to put some scotch in it so that you can make a pun <laughs> of. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a dram. You're welcome. Shit.
0: Shit. All right make a note (laughs) scribble that down thank you that's a good one (laughs) thank you my dear Uh, people of the smoke circle we are going to be each telling you a little story from history and whenever we have guests on the show we generally like to pick our topics in a way that relates to our guests their interests uh, connects to them in some way or is adjacent to their area of expertise and so uh, Dr. Franklin's going to kick it off for us today with a little uh, little bit of history.
2: His a time. little bit of history for your time. But to mm. start, we have to go to the future, at least in my time. So our story is going to begin in the 1990s. Now, travel with me to London, just several blocks away from Trafalgar Square, where Nelson stands atop his column. Upon Craven Street, an old townhouse sits dilapidated, a ruin falling apart. When a society comes together and decides to salvage that home, make it a museum uh, to teach about a famous person from history who lived there, a a man well-known for his intellect, talent in diplomacy, stunning good looks, me. And so they begin renovations of this particular (laughs) property. Uh, They uh, do paint analysis to determine the colors of the various rooms. They they repair the the cracks in the plaster. They go down uh, to the basement and, and, in the scope of historic preservation, it's always prudent to determine what might be below you before you add things atop, which means archaeology. And so they dig. Uh, they dig to discover and uncover the past. And one of the things they find on a particular day is a human thigh bone. Now, this is London. An uncommon. Mm-hmm. London is a city built atop the backs of bodies. But in this particular instance, they uncover not only a thigh bone, but in short succession, other bones. Not just one body, not just two, but by the end of their time, six bodies. Now, it's, it's not just the quantity of bodies, not just the diversity of ages and genders, but also what's been done to the bodies. Skulls that have been sawed in half, thigh bones with uh, marks carved in them, evidence of bodies being tampered with. And so the coroner was called, the coroner of London, who examined the bones and discovered that they dated back to the time that Ben Franklin lived there, that I lived there. And what the devil was I doing with these bodies? What the <laughs> devil was I doing with my 16 years in London? Well, I confess the answer is not as exciting as you think it might be. Don't go editing your Ben Franklin fan fictions yet. So <laughs> while I was in London, I was involved with... Uh, well, a a high amount of society, not just the Royal Academies, but innovators of science, of thought. I frequented uh, the coffee houses of London, not just the ones for the lawyers, but the ones for the botanists, the scientists, the uh, politicians and polymaths. Uh, And while I was doing that, I made the acquaintance of one Dr. William Hunter. Uh, Hunter was a famed anatomist. And in what way, what was radical for the time, uh, did his studies of anatomy and work not solely upon uh, the poorest of society, but also upon the aristocracy. Now, William Hunter had a young protege by the name of William Hewson. So two Williams. This is the tale of two Williams. Now, while I lived in Craven Street, I made close personal acquaintance with individuals who would eventually become my my family. In London, being separate from my children, uh, oftentimes over the course of those sixteen years, and my dear Deborah, my my wife, uh, those two women who I lived with were Miss Margaret Stevenson and her young daughter uh, Polly, who who in all respects was was a daughter to me. Uh, Polly and I uh, saw the the coronation of His Majesty King George the We were there for that. It was Polly who helped reserve the seats for that particular instance and occasion. But Polly made the acquaintance of William Hewson, and while a partnership was being fostered by William Hunter and William Houston, a very different partnership was being facilitated by young Master Hewson and Miss Polly Stevenson. So Dr. William Hunter and William Hewson formed a partnership and decided that they would uh, build an anatomy school, meaning a school and a place where people could pay admission to see medical demonstrations, um, study anatomy. We 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 live in a fascinating age, you see, uh, where we're questioning everything. It's, a, it's an age that perhaps posterity one day will call an age of enlightenment, despite various things which contradict and move against those ideas. But because we're questioning everything, there are no... <laughs> There are no rules. There are no regulations. There are no methods whereby man might uh, elevate themselves. They're simply people who wish to do something and oftentimes will will do it. So they form this anatomy school so people can come and study medicine, make these advances. Um, However, Dr. William Hunter begins to get very frustrated with young William Hewson, who um, the more time he spends with Polly Stevenson – Uh, becomes more obsessed with her anatomy than the anatomy of Dr. William Hunter. (laughs) I'm making a double entendre, you see. (laughs) So, uh, this home is built. Uh, The two gentlemen start squabbling over... The bodies that are being utilized for that anatomy school. Uh, Dr. Hunter uh, does not want Mr. Hewson involved coming into the house when Dr. Hunter's not there. Mr. Hewson uh, wishes to take some of the bones to make a skeleton, and Dr. Hunter doesn't want him to. Very quickly, their friendship begins to sour, and Dr. Hunter comes to me, knowing I'm a mutual connection of both. We spend an afternoon uh, wherein Dr. Hunter gives me all of the complaints he has. For young Mr. Hewson. And um, the nature of this document can one day, perhaps in your time, uh, be compared to two young middle school girls uh, (laughs) endeavoring to solve their grievances by going to a third party. It gets very, very catty. Uh, Dr. Hunter is very, very upset because at one point Mr. Hewson goes on a trip away and takes much longer than he said he was originally going to because he got diarrhea and Dr. Hunter's really upset with that fact so much so he mentions it in the complaints to me. Uh, Dr. Hunter's really mad because at one point Mr. Hewson took a bunch of bones out of a bunch of different buckets to try to make one skeleton out of a bunch of different bodies. Uh, Just really Really, really odd complaints, really strange complaints. Um, and it's, it's very evident in Dr. Hunter's complaints that he doesn't wish for the friendship to continue. He doesn't wish to be his enemy. He just wishes for their tenor to come to its natural conclusion. Uh, the final complaint he makes to me is that uh, he feels somewhat ashamed that he should come to me and have to make these various complaints, knowing my particular affection for young Mr. Hewson as well. Uh, To which I will will say, it matters not to me because I should wish in this instance uh, to do what good I can in remedying the friendship. And if I I cannot, uh, should see it to its natural conclusion, having good regard for both of them. Uh, Their friendship will not recover. Um, That anatomy school will eventually close. Mr. Hunter or Dr. Hunter will go on to have an illustrious career and, and will contribute various things uh, to the field of what will one day be called obstetrics um that will make numerous advances for that, uh but Mr. Hewson will have to utilize the Craven Street home for his salvaged anatomy school, the six cadavers that will eventually be buried now, the question is this you You need to utilize a body while it's still somewhat fresh. This is why uh in terms of interring the dead, the risk of grave robbing is highest in the first 10 days that a body is buried, which is why oftentimes relatives and connections would watch over the body for the first 10 days to ensure it's not meddled with. Um, but once those bodies have decayed and are no longer utilized, um, Dr. Hewson was faced with somewhat of a dilemma. What do you do with them? Do you then return them? Well, the identity of a uh, numerous cadavers at that point wasn't known. So What do you do with a body that is no longer of utility to you? Now, Dr. Hewson interred them in the basement, uh, as likely uh, the greatest method or modicum of respect he could warrant. But uh, in leaving those skeletons in the closet, he left more questions than answers for those who discovered those bodies 200 years later. Now, the unfortunate thing for, for Dr. Hewson was that would be one of the last things he would undertake. He would die a number of years later. And the ironic thing about it was Dr. Hewson's field was in hematology, which is the study of blood. Uh, Dr. Hewson one day when working on a cadaver slips with a scalpel uh, and in the intermingling of that will receive an infection of the blood, which will be his short undoing. Wow. Which-
0: Wow. Well, hey, we are so glad those skeletons aren't aren't yours,
2: (laughs) Doctor. I must say it's
0: way better than him being a serial killer. So
2: you know, (laughs) do you know? I don't. Well, maybe. Do you know? If here's a fascinating question. So if we talk in terms of property, right? Mm -hmm. If we speak in terms of natural liberty, I realize we're moving away from history and into philosophy. Mm -hmm. But if we speak of the natural liberties of John Locke, so for instance, uh, life, liberty property, what will later constitute as the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. Property is a natural right. Yes. So we warrant you have not only a property in yourself, the ability of self-possession, the ability to acquire and possess, um, but also um, the methods and means of those things which are appropriate to yourself. At what point does your body cease becoming your property? And if Mm -hmm. it doesn't sit as your property, does it pass to your heirs as their property, as other things? So, for instance, furniture, or does it become commonwealth, meaning the property of the world, of Mm. all? This becomes a a fascinating mm -hmm. legal foundation for an argument towards grave robbing.
0: Argument for grave robbing?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a a lawyer. (laughs) yeah.
0: Hey, neither am I. Well, thank you very much for that. That was
2: oh, a it's brilliant piece of
0: history. And I know that's one that comes up sometimes. I'm so I, excited
1: to hear that story because I remember when um, I tried to click on the article that came up one day, uh, it was like, nope, you've got to be a subscriber. So when you're like, he's going to talk about the skeletons. I was like, yes! Yes. <laughs> yes.
2: And then the extraordinary thing about that is you, you can tell by the two primary sources that survive of of Franklin trying to work things out between dr hunter and dr Houston. Houston worked really hard to get those bodies he really yeah. really did um he really <laughs> needed those skeletons and so um it is it is neat to see how these things are framed and also to explore the rabbit holes that uh that you often go down in in uncovering history so when i was doing the research for the episode I made about it. And in talking about this, you know, you think the most exciting thing is, oh, how did the bodies get there? This is so, this is going to be so juicy. And then you go down there and you say, oh, well, it makes sense how they got there. But wait, well, let's talk about this friendship falling out because that's way more interesting. And so it's, I think it's a reminder that history dovetails in wonderful ways. And that if you let your curiosity win, you can go down some really fabulous tangents that give you a much richer story than ever thought you ever thought you could. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let your curiosity win <laughs> when you're going in these these rabbit holes for history. It is. It's, it's really amazing. And, and I think that can give someone such a greater understanding of history as a whole instead of these little Pockets of Mm -hmm. stories. You're like, wait, wait, I learned about this thing. It does, it's that too, and it's this, and this has to do with that, or that sets the scene for this thing. And I love that. That's like one of my favorite (laughs) things when I'm researching. Mm. Delicious, delicious, delicious history. So during America's history, she has had five states that almost happened. And today, I would like to tell you about one of them the lost state of Franklin. We're gonna get a little exposition here. So a a few decades prior to the Revolutionary War, 1756 to 1763 is the Seven Years War, AKA the French and Indian War, which was just for the sake of simplicity here is this imperialistic struggle between Britain and France for territories in North America. And once this war ends, the British crowd announces uh, what they called the Royal Proclamation of 1763. It was meant to close down westward expansion beyond the Appalachian Mountains, beyond those 13 colonies. And it forbid private citizens and any of the colonial governments themselves from purchasing land or making any agreements with any of the indigenous tribes in that area. It was put into effect to help protect the colonists because they're going West and they're invading the lands of these indigenous tribes and are therefore being attacked when they're defending their homeland. And then also to protect native tribes and their settlements as white people are going West and being like, this is our land now and creating problems. So to help, help protect both parties of people. But what ended up happening is that they basically were like, jog on, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do about it, King George III? Your Majesty, curtsy. Like you can't stop us from thousands of miles away. Off we're going over the mountains. That is and such that's what the attitude that settled this country, dude. Like, yes, uh, that's just as I was going through mine. I was like, man, we haven't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> There's some real stubborn people here in, uh, oh, in yeah. the states, and so. Uh, while they're there, they branch out, they're making settlements in the Tennessee Valley, which what we would know today is eastern Tennessee is bordering right on that eastern Tennessee, western North Carolina area. Uh, land speculation was huge. And as, as far as the colonists are concerned, there's plenty of it around. You just have to, you know, stake a claim to it, essentially. Do you have a flag? As they, as they say, yeah, or as they see it. In one of my sources that I read, which is actually a, a dissertation from uh, Dr. Kevin Barksdale, uh, his that's his thing is like the lost state of Franklin. And something that he was saying was the land in terms of like stable, stable trade and air quotes here um, was land speculation, like having land and also enslaved Africans. Those were the their main forms of their currency in this region. And so if, you're expanding all your land, you're the person that becomes the most powerful. It's huge um, you know, economic power and political power. They've broken one rule already by going west, so why not another? <laughs> they start purchasing large chunks of land from the nearby Cherokee. So, so don't go west <laughs> and don't buy land from the indigenous tribes. And they're like, uh, check and check. What else do you want us to not do, basically? <laughs> It's the early years of the Revolutionary War, and the settlers were under regular attack, or at least regular threat of attack from these local tribes, mostly the, the Cherokee. And so they asked for North Carolina. They're like, actually, please take us back. We need your protection. Please annex us back in. And North Carolina did in 1777, which I made a note to myself I'm like, that just annoys me, to be honest. <laughs> Like, you were told not to go West. You, you're like a little toddler. Like, we told you no. You did it anyway. Like, you fucked around and found out, right? This is yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what this all is. But uh, but anyway, so North Carolina's like, we got you. The Revolutionary War ends on September 3rd, 1783. And, you know, the Treaty of Paris is signed. The following year, January 14th, 1784, Congress ratifies said treaty. And then officially, the United States... Is the United States as a an independent and sovereign nation? And during the 1780s, the United States was in the Confederation era, which is post Revolutionary War up until the signing of the Constitution. During the course of this, Congress is evolving as well. It's the um, Continental Congress and then the uh, Confederation Congress until you know the Congress that we know and almost said no and love today. But I was like, no, we know it today. <laughs> No end are familiar with, (laughs) yeah, are familiar with. That's it. And the Confederation period brought the thirteen states into like this loose union before the Constitution existed. It was never assumed that these territories and landholdings outside the thirteen states were going to just automatically become part of the thirteen states. (laughs) For the government, though, this area was a way to dig themselves out of national debt. Starting before the end of the Revolutionary War, some states that had Western landholdings were asked to cede their territories to Congress to help pay for the war. And North Carolina was one of the last states asked, and that was in uh, 1784. The war had ended. Treaty of Paris had been ratified in January. And in April, North Car- Carolina's like, OK, here's four of our, our counties. Here's our Western territory. You can have this Congress. And that's what a bunch of the people that were living in the area were like, oh, wait, I'm sorry. I beg your pardon? You're going to you're gonna sell us? Like, who are you going to sell us to? To France? To Spain? No, thank you. We are our own people now. And they set about taking matters into their own hands of like, we're going to establish our own state. A convention of delegates met together uh, with Revolutionary War veteran John Sevier as its president. They decided to write their own constitution. Uh, their own Declaration of Independence, and become their own state in 1784. And just because news doesn't travel so fast during this time period, you know, it's not like you get on your smartphone and you can find out the latest thing. North Carolina had given said land to Congress, but then in November 1784, was like, actually, no, we're gonna we're gonna keep this. They don't need it. We're good. We're gonna hold on to this. And uh, <laughs> psych. But the people in this new Franklin, psych, exactly. They're like, well, we're just going to keep on fighting for our independence and be our own state. I think for them, knowing that they were potentially could be at the mercy of like, this, this parent state. Now, remember, the delegation is all male landholders, and their land gives them power and money. And I don't think they want their economic interests threatened, which makes a lot of sense. So the delegation writes their own Declaration of Independence. They draft their constitution saying, we unanimously agree that our lives, liberties, and prosperity can be more secure and our happiness much better propagated by our separation. And consequently, that is our duty, and unalienable right to form ourselves into a new independent state. Their original constitution mostly followed North Carolina's, not too long after a second constitution is put forth. It was a little more progressive in that it, uh, in addition to ministers, they're like no lawyers, no doctors can hold public office. We're also gonna add in the clause that no one can run for office that is of immoral character. Gambling, drunkenness, uh, engaging in lewd behavior. (laughs) Uh, If you swear, break the Sabbath. But the delegates were like, no, we're good with what we've got. The Houston Constitution also uses the name Frankland for the new state, which, like, I know this is just my opinion, and my opinion doesn't mean anything, but uh, I hate it. I was going to say, <laughs> I like, hey, do <laughs> I love Frankland. And thankfully, that's not what they landed on. But uh, it was originally and remained Frankland as a nod to founding father, Benjamin Franklin. And in fact, uh, in an attempt to gain favor from said founding father, a member of the uh, Convention of Delegates even wrote a letter to our dear Benny Franks saying, 15th of June, 1786. Sir, I make no doubt but you have heard that the good people of this country have declared themselves a separate state from North Carolina. And as a testimony of the high esteem they have for the many important and faithful services that you have rendered your country, to commemorate you, they have called the name of their state after you, your most obedient and humble servant, William Cock. What a suck up. <laughs> uh, Mr. Franklin penned a very polite letter back, but offered no public backing. But it was, it was very nice, very polite, <laughs> as uh, a bit of a good for you, Godspeed and good luck on your endeavor sort of thing. Franklin partitioned the Confederation Congress for statehood, but failed to secure the two-thirds needed to become America's 14th state. John Sevier, who is the delegation pre- president I mentioned earlier, and um, ended up being like the de facto leader, uh, governor, he started having power struggles with a, another Franklinite leader, John Tipton. And then another ingredient to add to the doomed to fail cauldron is that they're still under frequent attack from the local native tribes. Treaties that they had made with some of the tribes weren't upheld by others, obviously. And then the United States government, a bigger government, uh let's face it, real <laughs> government, uh, is also making treaties which start to conflict with ones made with Franklin. So it was a real mess. But... <laughs> They stuck it out for four years. For four years, they like really tried to just hold on to like us being a state of Franklin. And unfortunately, it's a bit of like an anticlimactic ending here. But uh, John Sevier decided to make a bid for aid from Spain. from from Spain. from sp- the Span. I put the Spanish from Spain, the from Spanish spam. from Span. <laughs> Uh, And that, well, you know, it went over with Congress as well as I just said it. So Congress was like, I'm sorry, you're doing what now? We call that treason around here (laughs) and arrested him. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) once that happens, uh, the state of Franklin soon collapses and that land is ceded and then later becomes the state of Tennessee. Our uh, old John Sevier, he not only... Miraculously escapes serious punishment for these charges, but later manages to become the first governor of Tennessee.
3: So that's there's a little
0: devil. There's a little civics lesson, which is a bit concerning <laughs> for American civics. But uh, but that yeah, that's how we have this weird lost state of Franklin, America's almost 14th state. Wow. Yeah. And they gave it a good old college try, didn't they? They did. They really tried. And they stuck around the longest. Like I mentioned that there were five would-be states at some point, Franklin being one of them. But the Franklin one is the one that lasts the longest uh, for four years. Uh, do you guys want to hear some of the other four? Or are you good? I would, yeah. Okay. So I thought they were really interesting and I, I just kind of like loved having nerdy thought experiments about them because i was like some of these are really fascinating some of them are dumb reasons and some of them are like wow that would have been really interesting if that went through the first one up is deseret deseret would have been a massive state it basically would have been almost all of the west of our modern day united states of america it would have included modern day california oregon nevada utah new mexico arizona wyoming and idaho wow eight Those states on their own are massive. Right. Holy moly. (laughs) (laughs) So just super state them all together into Deseret. It was was proposed by Mormon settlers in 1849. But in addition to like the sheer size of it, because it would have been so big as a state, a lot of people weren't on board with the polygamous practices of Mm -hmm. Mormonism. So a lot of people were like, No, we can't have that. We we they're going to turn all of the America, all of the America, all the United States into like turn to Mormonism. That was the anti Mormonism uh, rallying cry. But they got Utah. They they got (laughs) Utah. That's what happened. Yeah, and there there were some hurdles even as they were like trying to petition to become the super state. But uh, it all really ends in 1850. The Utah Territory is established, uh, and Brigham Young, the Mormon leader. Uh, becomes the first governor and so that's why Utah is such a big place for Mormonism I was like that yeah. makes a lot of sense <laughs> I think what's interesting though is like for years after the uh some some Mormon elders would secretly meet after the U- Utah territory uh general assembly meetings and they would like ratify laws under the name Deseret
2: wow they're like we're gonna their just secret, hold on to Deseret their <laughs> secret stage name.
0: Okay, so doesn't that sound fun deseret deseret yeah. sounds like like a fun um yeah please like welcome to, to the stage queen.
2: deseret
0: Ooh, <laughs> the crowd goes wild uh yeah deseret yeah i mean that's how i've been pronouncing it in my head i'm probably gonna wow. get some emails and says it's uh does or does you know something like that but uh so well, that, that was yeah <laughs> so that's number two Hey everybody, this is editing Laurel here for a moment. In the story that I'm about to tell about Sequoia in a second, the source that I used made it seem that Sequoia was going to be two territories in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Territory and the Indian Territory, and that they were gonna be two separate independent states called Sequoia collectively. But when I came back to put in like maps and a visual aid for this section, I realized that actually wasn't really going to be the case at all. Maybe at some point they talked about having two independent states, but really it was always going to be the Indian territory in the eastern part of Oklahoma. So I just want to make that clear. I did try to edit out a few places where I say two, but there's one point in the very beginning where I say two, and it just didn't edit out very nice. So I wanted to make sure I made that distinction and made that clear. All right, let's get back to the show. The next one is Sequoia. And this was mm-hmm. a plan to create Ooh. two individual states for Native Americans. I think I've it, heard of this one. Yeah, this is, one's really interesting. It, it began, the plans began in the early 1900s uh, during a meeting of the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole nations. And the region that was in question was eastern Oklahoma, call it Sequoia, which was named after the creator of the Cherokee writing system. Loving it. Their rather progressive constitution that they made was uh, really expansive, and it included restrictions on child labor and antitrust laws. Unfortunately, the state of Sequoia uh, were not ratified by Congress. Congress just didn't want to add two new Western states. (laughs) So they said no. But um, the constitution of Sequoia lives on because a lot of future states then directly copied portions of that for their own state constitutions. And I also read that the yearly conference uh, Native American issues that's held by the Cherokee Nation, they still call it the state of Sequoia. Wow. Interesting. These last two are a little bit childish, but (laughs) I'm going to go there. So the fourth almost state was called uh, Absaroka, which came out of discontent during the uh, Great Depression in 1939, and began in Sheridan, Wyoming. So a little little shout out to our friend Aaron Odom from Euripides Humanities. That's where he's from. Um, and there, a group of politicians and businessmen wanted to create a new state which en- encompassed large parts of Wyoming, Montana, and South Dakota. And their whole thing was like, we're going to hear grievances from our our new citizens. Air quotes there. Uh, but they even handed out license plates that said Absaroka on it. Um, and they even had a Miss Absaroka. She was the the first, the one and the only, the first and last. But I feel like that's when you know you've got a state when you can enter her in the uh, Miss America competition yeah. as Miss Absaroka. <laughs> but uh, no, nothing more official went forward than that. And it just died on its ass. But that's Absaroka. <laughs> <laughs> the last one is uh, Jefferson. And this began in 1941 when a group of copper mining countries in Northern California and Southern Oregon just got fed up with poor infrastructure. They're, they didn't really have great funding for their highways as they're traveling back and forth over their mining territory. And so they decided to elect a governor of their new state, who was a judge named John Childs. Uh, they even took up a state flag and armed themselves at the border, well, their imaginary border of Jefferson, uh, with a flyer that said, you are now entering Jefferson, which I'm sure was confusing as hell for everybody that entered. That was not a part of (laughs) what was going on, who didn't get the memo. Uh, But uh, so yeah, the Jeffersonians were were short-lived. They uh, swore in their their new governor. And then a couple of days later, there was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm. So everyone then got started with, you know, World War Two, but uh and that one also died on its ass, which sounds like it's for the butter. They sounded a little bit um excitable, if you will. So So there is the lost state of Franklin and four other would have been states for America. There we go. Thanks. Thanks guys. <laughs>
3: If you love history, and it's obvious you do, or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast, then I think you're going to enjoy my podcast as well. My name is Aaron Odom, and I am the host of Euripides Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Yes, I recognize that the title of the show is hard to spell. Now, do you need to be a theater history nerd in order to enjoy this show? No, you just have to like stories about the strangeness and hilarity that history can sometimes be. It just so happens that all my stories revolve around theater. For example, I've had episodes on why vampire musicals have never been successful, how clowns used to accompany funeral processions to honor the dead, and how one of the biggest pest infestations in America occurred, all thanks to William Shakespeare. Euripides Humanities can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or wherever you get your podcasts. And both Euripides and Humanities start with the letters E-U, and I bet you can figure it out from there. Join me, Aaron Odom, for Euripides Humanities. I'll see you at intermission.
0: What a delight it's been to have Brian on with us to immerse us in that Benjamin Franklin experience. We really loved hearing about how he's been bringing history to life and we continue a really fantastic conversation with him on his adventures in first-person interpretation in what the future of history content is looking like. It was a really wonderful chat, and honestly, it really affirmed for me why I love doing what I do here on Hightailing Through History. And so if you want to hear that, that's up on our Patreon called Best Buds. What if you want to be our best bud? That's up now. If you want to hear that interview and also just help support what we're doing around here, it's massively appreciated. That's patreon.com forward slash Hightailing Through History. Or if you go to Patreon's homepage, you just search for us in the bar, you'll see our little logo will pop up exclusive content, such as the interview with Brian and our other guests, behind the scenes the content, our half-baked episodes. We're just going to be adding more and more in the new year for you. But there are other ways to support us for free, which is also massively helpful to us and our little indie podcast. And that's rating and reviewing on the platform you're listening on. Subscribe, follow, maybe share your favorite episode on your social media and we would love to connect with you we're on tiktok instagram it's all listed and linked directly in our show notes below and when you follow please say hi that's one of our favorite things we wrap things up with the history of the Boston Tea Party which celebrates its 250 year anniversary in 2023 and with that let's puff puff pass it on to part two katie would you like to to bring it on home let's crack these knuckles let's get to it
1: so i bring to you today the real story of the boston tea party
3: mm.
0: clink clink everybody clink 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 oh, hold tea, on tea gotta, time. <laughs> we all just bash there our
1: cameras <laughs> like there you go everybody i did actually have tea while i was writing this And I looked over and I was like, that's a bit ironic. And I was like, all right, fantastic. (laughs) Was as it should be. So this December 16th of this year, 20, what year is it? 2023 will be, Mm -hmm. (laughs) sometimes I don't know. It will be the 250th anniversary of said Boston Tea Party. So we're going to talk about that. To understand this event, we must first... Well, let's not jump in a rowboat. That would take a long time. But we're going to head over to England (laughs) for some brief backstory. So on May 10th of 1773, British Parliament passed the Tea Act, which awarded the British East India Trading Company a monopoly on tea sales within the American colonies. So the East India Trading Company, uh, it's a... This is how uh, Britannia described it as a monopolistic <laughs> trading entity that began as a result of England participating in the East India trade for spices and whatnot. Uh, and it did, when I looked it up, it said it was associated with the Silk Road, but it was the naval part of it. But later also, it kind of said, because I wasn't sure because I was pretty sure that Silk Road was older than that. And they were like, I mean, you could... Infer that it is part of it, but it was more like a waterway of it. And I was like, "All
0: right, well." So when we talked, just because I've been going back and doing the old episodes, when we talked about Shunshu uh, with like the yeah. trade that was going through the South China Sea, yeah. that was when we talked about like the British it's ships that were going through there. It. It's East India tra- Trading Company, yeah. So, yeah, you know. so yeah, they were like that that naval trade route to to, to East Asia, and mm-hmm. amongst other things, but. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Well this specifically.
1: Yeah, we're Mm -hmm. focused on like goods, not, you know. (laughs) So essentially the Tea Act was the British government, the Crown, issuing a bailout for a company on the brink of collapse. So the East India Trading Company was suffering from massive debts that stemmed from actually annual contracts that they held with the Crown that totaled up I mean I'm going to assume back then it was a lot. It was 400,000 pounds per year that they all because there was multiple contracts.
0: Go ahead, look it up. I see you. 400,000 pounds in what year? 1773. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. So, in addition
1: to having contractual obligations to the Crown of England, Uh, They also were having financial difficulties with uh, unstable political and economic climates in India, where a lot of their goods came from. So it makes it harder to procure these goods and then make the sales. And the European markets were actually already weak from the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War uh, that we uh, spoke about earlier. So it did weaken uh, trade for them as well. So the East India Trading Company was failing at this point in time. It was and interestingly enough, yes,
0: I had okay. the answer, <laughs> so this is this is giving me dollars, American dollars as opposed to uh, pounds, pounds yeah, but we have fifteen million nine hundred and eighty two thousand nine hundred and nine dollars and nine cents in today's money, righty, then. so they were super, super broke. So oh, where was I? Oh, uh,
1: at this point in time, It was interesting because everyone considered this company, which, I mean, I don't know about everybody else. I'm only familiar with it because of Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, It was too big to fail. So the British government kind of had to scramble to save it. So by passing the Tea Act, the British gave the East India Trading Company an almost complete monopoly over the American colonies. As far as specifically, yes, in tea trade, obviously, because that's where this is going. Um, but with other things as well. So this meant they could bypass, uh, the colonial merchants. So local merchants, they didn't get a hand in the deal, which kind of throws off a local economy, mm-hmm. um, because they would have sold on behalf of the company. And they even undercut the Dutch tea price. Apparently there was a big dutch tea smuggling thing going on like it's mentioned multiple times and they were like yeah the good dutch tea because it was the most popular one in the colonies i was like okay so apparently dutch tea is superior to english tea i myself partake in much of the irish tea so there you Mm -hmm. go well you know the berries like if you leave that tea bag in long enough your spoon will stand straight up man that stuff gets strong (laughs) <laughs> and Blake tried it one time and he goes, this is awful. I was like, no, that's real tea. That's how you start your
0: day. <laughs> yeah, builder's tea. There it is. Oh, yeah,
1: man. Yeah. It's good stuff. So the Tea Act actually imposed no new taxes on colonists, right? So the tax on tea was actually the, uh, the Townsend Act of 1767. Too bad it wasn't 69. Anyway, so not only... Did it tax tea? It also taxed glass, oil, lead, paint, paper, everything. Oh, no. So, due to the protests of that Townsend Act, it was repealed on all commodities in 1777, three years prior to where we're at, except for the tea. The crown wanted to maintain its right to tax the colonies. Hard to imagine. So, that tea. Yeah, man, they weren't letting it go. So, while the tea tax was not intended to actually anger the colonists, it fundamentally angered them to have a government sanctioned monopoly on tea. So, they were upset about that. More like the morals of it all, they weren't actually getting taxed any extra than what they already were with that original act. So, the tea act was a direct threat to merchants of Boston, especially at the time, because that was a big harbor, big port. So, merchants such as John Hancock, who he hatched a plot got together and hatched a plot with some Mm. other devious minds. The group called themselves the Sons of Liberty. They disguised themselves as members of the Mohawk tribe, so take that as you will, uh, and secretly (laughs) boarded three ships in the Boston Harbor. They destroyed over 92,000 pounds of tea on the night of December 16th in 1773, which, by the way, I'm going to guess was probably really freaking cold. And also, I have I a question imagine. here. I'm going to side quest off for a second, as I am <sighs> so apt to do with my ADHD in full swing. Um, Wouldn't that kill the fish in the harbor?
2: So do you want to know something incredible
1: Absolutely.
2: Yes. <laughs> so the tea that they're throwing into the harbor is a mix of bohe, hyacinth, and oolong. They throw oh. so much tea into the harbor that it affects the flavor of the fish for the next several months. What? So here's oh. the So here's the incredible thing about okay. tea in the eighteenth century. It is not being shipped in loose leaf, the way you might conceive it. Uh, today the tea is actually pressed into these very dense bricks oh, and so man. you have these crates of tea that are pressed into these bricks That's these a cakes lot of, tea. of tea so to give you context of how much tea they're not dumping loose leaf tea uh-uh. they're they're destroying these concentrated heavy crates Um, That are then taking a long time to dissolve into Boston Harbor.
1: Holy crap.
2: Uh, And so it changes the flavor of the fish, but they live.
1: So they do live. Why do Mm -hmm. I love that you had that (laughs) answer? So that how they press that into bricks. That's how I get my sphagnum moss that I put in all my animal things, because it's easier to ship. Stop making fun of me. Stop laughing. I can see you. It's it's the easiest way to... Do you know how expensive that shit is? It's from New Zealand, I'm dude. really
2: excited for the sphagnum moss party of 2023 <laughs> to commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, where you just dump that shit in a kid pool and call yourself a revolutionary, baby. Right? I mean...
1: It is the easiest way to get it because it lightens it per bulk. You're actually paying less and getting more. So I'm excited about this. <laughs> Man, I didn't know that. That is definitely the more efficient way to ship it. I had no idea we did that back in the 1700s. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. What what an amazing little fact that is. I, Do I, you think that they enjoyed delicious. the taste of the fish?
1: And then like they were like, damn, it's all gone. Somebody needs to get back out there and start dumping tea. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe wow. not maybe it was dreadful who knows thank you for yeah, that i'm so glad that's... you had that answer
0: <laughs> oh so good thank you
1: so initially the colonists never uh even let the tea be offloaded when the ships would pull up they would say gtfo and they would send the ships right back to england they were like we don't want what you're bringing get out of here once again we haven't changed much as a country. <laughs> so however in some places the east india trading company would unload their tea right get it all off on the docks at which point your little dock loading guys pull it and bring it to the merchants in protest they would sit and let it rot right there on the dock they're like nope we're not doing it we're not picking it up so they were there was much uh discontent amongst the uh revolutionaries So the three ships that were boarded on December 16th, 1773, were the Beaver, Dartmouth, and Eleanor. So the governor and chief justice of Massachusetts at the time refused to let the ships return to England. So they docked in the harbor, and they're trying to get everybody calmed down, sorted out, peaceful. Didn't work, obviously. As you can imagine, opinions on this act of vandalism were actually varied. Some colonist leaders, such as uh, John Adams, was thrilled to hear the Boston Harbor was now swimming in tea and changing the flavor of fish for months to come. Uh, While others, such as jolly old George, were strongly disapproving of the destruction of the tea. He was not happy about it. So Washington, like many others, held that private property, it's a protected thing. You don't mess with it, right? That somebody else's stuff. It's not yours. Don't touch it. And Benjamin Franklin. We know him. He's like... Even insisted <laughs> that the East India Trading Company be reimbursed for this crime and even offered to pay for the lost product himself because he was with Washington mm-hmm. and that this is wrong. This is not the way to go about it. Very moral man. Uh, so as with most things, it was still used for uh, a tool for political propaganda. So whilst in private. Washington was disapproving of it. He wrote on June of 1774 that the cause of Boston ever will be considered as the cause of America, right? So he's kind of spinning it to serve a a revolutionary purpose, we shall say. It also meant that the British government closed the port in Boston, which would hit us hard economically, as at that point, you know, a lot of their almost everything was if you don't have that port open, you're not getting goods. You're not getting probably fish. I mean, for eating or anything like that. So not good. Uh, So they closed the port until the damages were paid for and annulled the colonial self-government in Massachusetts. So can't hold your own elections and stuff anymore. You lost your privileges. And they expanded the quartering, quartering act. The quartering act is where local government, Uh, had to house and feed soldiers of the English government, right? So they're like, they're there, they're yours. You got to take care of them, though, whether you want to or not. There was even a second Boston Tea Party in March of 1774 when 60 or more men, in disguises, of course, boarded the ship called the Fortune. And this time they sent about 30 chests over into the harbor uh, and this act of vandalism was less effective than the first attempt, obviously. Um, but that was about, if I remember how many chests it was, I think, I thought they dumped 62 the first time. So they only got about half this time, which is still a lot of tea. So, which leads me to wonder was the fish still flavored? We may never.
2: <laughs> Maybe they did it to reflavor the fish.
1: <laughs> that, when you <laughs> said that, I was like, oh my God, wait till we get to the second one. Do you think that's what it was? <laughs> this fish oh. has been
0: boring these last few months let's shake things up again I need some gulang
1: uh, yeah. mm. in my cod this isn't working for me. <laughs> this lobster is incredibly <laughs> underflavored
2: <laughs> do you know how much tea in total was destroyed during the Boston Tea Party I don't know the exact number but it was a lipton. ton lip ton oh. of tea <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> I hate. I hate I myself. That. No, I, hate, I love that. I hate it. I hate it
1: so much. <laughs> uh, oh man! As me, I was like, "Yeah." Then he said the sad part is, I feel like sometimes I'm too like literal for fun pun. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh!" As the joke sails right overhead, I'm like, "Damn it! I'm only four <laughs> eleven. There it goes. just catch it that was gold no i caught that one my catcher's mitt was Uh, ready girl i was like
0: yeah
1: yeah so for decades after the event no one knew actually who was responsible for the destruction of the tea that was not talked about uh even after american independence they still could have faced criminal charges civil charges and condemnation from the leaders at the time you know like washington benny franks do you think so? Uh, Even today, we still don't know the identities of everybody involved, except for John Hancock, mm-hmm. who I think was kind of a loud mouth. I'm starting to understand the more I learn about him. That's why he was his. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. That's <laughs> something right there. You know, like, look at me.
0: I could be wrong. That was now. a big, giant signature. For that everyone was who's his not big, watching. giant
1: signature. <laughs> he wanted to make sure everybody knew he was on there. Uh <laughs> plus. So the event did not earn the name of the Boston Tea Party until a newspaper references it, probably in jest, I'm going to guess, as the Boston Tea Party uh, in the year of 1826, so much later on. And in the 1830s, two books called A Retrospect of the Tea Party and Traits of the Tea Party uh, then introduced the term. And at that point, it was cemented into pop culture. And that's what it was called. It's printed in our history books. I don't know. If you had it in your history book, Laurel, I definitely did.
0: Yep. How oh, old and... do you
1: think I am? <laughs> Calm down. That's not where I was going with it. I just didn't know if you remembered. Because <laughs> I just remember specifically it saying that. And I was like, that's kind of like... When I found out that's what it was called, <laughs> I was like, that's a bit funny to like then print that in a history book instead of calling it the Boston Tea Incident or something. But Oh, okay. Well, anywho. So that is the story of the Boston Tea Party in uh, its, you know, dirty laundry aired and truths fulfilled. So there it is. Mm.
0: There it Bravo. is. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Yeah, I definitely feel in a party kind of mood now. That's good. Actually, when this episode comes out, it will be December 15th. So when you hear Just this episode time. from it's the day before <laughs> the 250th anniversary at the Boston Tea Party thank you, Katie. You're welcome. 250 years ago, man.
2: Right. It's a wild, it's a, it's a, such a neat time to look at American history because, you know, we're, we're walking towards 2026. And so these sort of mm-hmm. benchmark events that we consider to be, um, kind of all happening at once, like history happens yeah. at once. Um, uh, mm. Francis, ba- er, uh, Francis Bacon has a great, sort of statement around that of like time is is consistent everything's happening at once but we have a real opportunity to study history as it's sort of happening so december 16th you've got the boston tea party you know with 2024 you have um the colonies' responses how these um how they respond to the boston tea party and how those responses cause equal and opposite reactions to parliament that eventually bring us to April of 2025 and Lexington and Concord. So like, it's neat to sit in and, and be in the mm. middle of all of these things.
0: It yeah. really is. Yeah. It's, it's really, really cool. And, um, and it's really great that we get to share these, these moments and this excitement that we have about these sort of things in history. We get to share them with other people and, and experience this all together. And, and so we're, uh, um, it's just a it's a bloody delight, is what it is. You get to be friends. <laughs> I, get friends. I love being friends. Um, well thank you both of you for for having such like awesome stories. I just love when we have these guest episodes and we we can kind of tie these things together a little bit and and the MVP coming each in
1: with sweet tea knowledge,
0: like Yeah. <laughs> Man, flavored fish. <laughs> amazing. The 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party coming up, which I believe uh, you are going to be covering a lot of that on your show. Is that that correct? That's right. So season
2: two of Let's Be Frank is uh, called Spilling Tea. So with season one, I had kind of a um, Chasing Independence, which the Declaration of Independence was sort of the climax of that. And so this season, I've got um, an episode not dropping this Monday, but the following Monday spilling tea part four, which is going to be sort of a summary of um, how the tea got there. So from, from the vessels leaving England to getting here and, and everything. And then on the anniversary, I've got an episode on the uh, Boston tea party coming out. Um, So that'll be, I think the day after this one uh, comes out. So I'll be able to sit (laughs) in that episode and be like, Hey, if you want a great time,
0: (laughs) Hey come come hang out come, come join us out. there's always always some room
2: for everybody um, here. So yeah, so yeah, I've got mm-hmm. one coming out on the on the anniversary.
0: Brilliant. That'll be great. Yeah, so all of your um, your social media handles, yeah, links to your podcast. We're going to have that all directly linked in our show notes below, so that, that we can connect with Brian. Because I, I mean, it's been such a delight getting to know you. Like I said earlier, like all the history people that I meet, you guys are all my best friends now, and uh, <laughs> my heart <laughs> forever and ever Whoa. and ever. <laughs> and so, uh, so we definitely would love having you back in the future if you feel so inclined. Oh, and we. We loved having you on today. Thank you so so much. In the meantime, folks, get money, get high, give love, and Katie. I mean, learn about Benjamin Franklin. Like
1: <laughs> Benny Benny Franks is
0: where it's at. Not
1: to mention also Benny Franks, but like all about
2: those Benjamins, baby. Get them Benjamins.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or Washington <laughs> I Washington's.
1: Washingtons. Me too.
0: And it hails with some more Washingtons.
1: Oh, doesn't it? especially with the Lincoln's. twenty-five centers, <laughs> nailing them.
0: Bye, <laughs> folks. Bye.